0: The Idea of Systematic Theology, Part 2, by B.B. Warfield. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. 5. Under such a conception of its nature and sources, we are led to consider the place of systematic theology among the other theological disciplines, as well as among the other sciences in general. Without encroaching upon the details of theological encyclopaedia, we may adopt here the usual fourfold distribution of the theological disciplines into the exegetical, the historical, the systematic, and the practical, with only the correction of prefixing to the May 5th department of apologetical theology. The place of systematic theology in this distribution is determined by its relation to the preceding disciplines, of which it is the crown and head." Apologetical theology prepares the way for all theology by establishing its necessary presuppositions, without which no theology is possible, the existence and essential nature of God, the religious nature of man which enables him to receive a revelation from God, the possibility of a revelation and its actual realization in the scriptures. It thus places the scriptures in our hands for investigation and study. Exegetical theology receives these inspired writings from the hands of apologetics and investigates their meaning, presenting us with a body of detailed and substantiated results, culminating in a series of organized systems of biblical history, biblical ethics, biblical theology and the like, which provide material for further use in the more advanced disciplines. Historical theology investigates the progressive realisation of Christianity in the lives, hearts, worship and thoughts of men, issuing not only in a full account of the history of Christianity, but also in a body of facts which come into use in the more advanced disciplines, especially in the way of the manifold experiments that have been made during the ages in Christian organisation, worship, living and creed building as well as of the sifted results of the reasoned thinking and deep experience of Christian truth during the whole past. Systematic theology does not fail to strike its roots deeply into this matter furnished by historical theology. It knows how to profit by the experience of all past generations in their efforts to understand and define, to systematize and defend revealed truth and it thinks of nothing so little as lightly to discard the conquests of so many hard-fought fields. It therefore gladly utilizes all the material that historical theology brings it, accounting it indeed the very precipitate of the Christian consciousness of the past, "...but it does not use it crudely or at first hand for itself, but accepts it as investigated, explained, and made available by the sister discipline of historical theology, which alone can understand it or draw from it its true lessons." It certainly does not find in it its chief or primary source, and its relation to historical theology is, in consequence, far less close than that in which it stands to exegetical theology, which is its true and especial handmaid. The independence of exegetical theology is seen in the fact that it does its work wholly without thought or anxiety as to the use that is to be made of its results and that it furnishes a vastly larger body of data than can be utilised by any one discipline. It provides a body of historical, ethical, liturgic, ecclesiastical facts, as well as a body of theological facts. But so far as its theological facts are concerned, it provides them chiefly that they may be used by systematic theology as material out of which to build its system. This is not to forget the claims of biblical theology, it is rather to emphasize its value and to afford occasion for explaining its true place in the Encyclopedia, and its true relations on the one side to exegetical theology, and on the other to systematics, a matter which appears to be even yet imperfectly understood in some quarters. Biblical theology is not a section of historical theology, although it must be studied in a historical spirit and has a historical face. It is rather the ripest fruit of exegetics, and exegetics has not performed its task until its scattered results in the way of theological data are gathered up into a full and articulated system of biblical theology. It is to be hoped that the time will come when no commentary will be considered complete until the capstone is placed upon its fabric by closing chapters gathering up into systematized exhibits the unsystematized results of the continuous exegesis of the text in the spheres of history, ethics, theology and the like. The task of biblical theology, in a word, is the task of coordinating the scattered results of continuous exegesis into a concatenated whole, whether with reference to a single book of scripture, or to a body of related books, or to the whole scriptural fabric. Its chief object is not to find differences of conception between the various writers, though some recent students of the subject seem to think this is so much their duty that when they cannot find differences they make them. It is to reproduce the theological thought of each writer or group of writers in the form in which it lay in their own minds, so that we may be enabled to look at their theological statements at their angle, and to understand all their deliverances as modified and conditioned by their own point of view. Its exegetical value lies just in this circumstance, that it is only when we have thus concatenated an author's theological statements into a whole that we can be sure that we understand them as he understood them in detail. A light is inevitably thrown back from biblical theology upon the separate theological deliverances as they occur in the text, such as subtly colours them and often, for the first time, gives them to us in their true setting, and thus enables us to guard against perverting them when we adapt them to our use. This is a noble function, and could students of biblical theology only firmly grasp it, Once for all, as their task, it would prevent this important science from being brought into contempt through a tendency to exaggerate differences in form of statement into divergences of view, and so to force the deliverances of each book into a strange and unnatural combination, in the effort to vindicate a function for this discipline. The relation of biblical theology to systematic theology is based on a true view of its function, Systematic theology is not founded on the direct and primary results of the exegetical process. It is founded on the final and complete results of exegesis, as exhibited in biblical theology. Not exegesis itself, then, but biblical theology provides the material for systematics. Biblical theology is not, then, a rival of systematics. It is not even a parallel product of the same body of facts provided by exegesis. It is the basis and source of systematics. Systematic theology is not a concatenation of the scattered theological data furnished by the exegetic process. It is the combination of the already concatenated data given to it by biblical theology. It uses the individual data furnished by exegesis in a word not crudely, not independently for itself, but only after these data have been worked up into biblical theology and have received from it their final coloring and subtlest shades of meaning. In other words, only in their true sense, and after exegetics has said its last word upon them. Just as we shall attain our finest and truest conception of the person and work of Christ, not by crudely trying to combine the scattered details of his life and teaching, as given in our four Gospels, into one patchwork life and account of his teaching, but far more rationally and far more successfully by first catching Matthew's full conception of Jesus, and then Mark's, and then Luke's, and then John's, and combining these four conceptions into one rounded whole. So we gain our truest systematics not by at once working together the separate dogmatic statements in the Scriptures, but by combining them in their due order and proportion as they stand in the various theologies of the Scriptures. Thus we are enabled to view the future whole not only in its parts, but in the several combinations of the parts, and looking at it from every side to obtain a true conception of its solidity and strength, and to avoid all exaggeration or falsification of the details in giving them place in the completed structure. And thus we do not make our theology according to our own pattern as a mosaic, out of the fragments of the biblical teaching, but rather look out from ourselves upon it as a great prospect, framed out of the mountains and plains of the theologies of the scriptures, and strive to attain a point of view from which we can bring the whole landscape into our field of sight. From this point of view we find no difficulty in understanding the relation in which the several disciplines stand to one another, with respect to their contents, The material that systematics draws from other than biblical sources may be here left momentarily out of account. The actual contents of the theological results of the exegetic process of biblical theology and of systematics with this limitation may be said to be the same. The immediate work of exegesis may be compared to the work of a recruiting officer. It draws out from the mass of mankind the men who are to constitute the army. Biblical theology organises these men into companies and regiments and corps, arranged in marching order and accoutred for service. Systematic theology combines these companies and regiments and corps into an army, a single and unitary whole determined by its own all-pervasive principle. It too is composed of men, the same men which were recruited by exegetics, but it is composed of these men not as individuals merely, but in their due relations to the other men of their companies and regiments and corps. The simile is far from a perfect one, but it may illustrate the mutual relations of the disciplines, and also perhaps suggest the historical element that attaches to biblical theology, and the element of all-inclusive systematization which is inseparable from systematic theology. It is just this element, determining the spirit and therefore the methods of systematic theology, which, along with its greater inclusiveness, discriminates it from all forms of biblical theology, the spirit of which is purely historical. 6. The place that theology, as the scientific presentation of all the facts that are known concerning God and his relations, claims for itself within the circle of the sciences, is an equally high one with that which it claims among the theological disciplines. Whether we consider the topics which it treats in their dignity, their excellence, their grandeur, or the certainty with which its data can be determined, or the completeness with which its principles have been ascertained and its details classified, or the usefulness and importance of its discoveries. It is as far out of all comparison above all other sciences as the eternal health and destiny of the soul are of more value than this fleeting life in this world. It is not so above them, however as not to be also a constituent member of the closely interrelated and mutually interacting organism of the sciences. There is no one of them all which is not in some measure touched and affected by it, or which is not in some measure included in it. As all nature, whether mental or material, may be conceived of as only the mode in which God manifests himself, every science which investigates nature and ascertains its laws is occupied with the discovery of the modes of the divine action, and as such might be considered a branch of theology. And on the other hand, as all nature, whether mental or material, owes its existence to God, every science which investigates nature and ascertains its laws depends for its foundation upon that science which would make known what God is and what the relations are in which he stands to the work of his hands and in which they stand to him, and must borrow from it those conceptions through which alone the material with which it deals can find its explanation or receive its proper significance. Theology thus enters into the structure of every other science. Its closest relations are, no doubt, with the highest of the other sciences, ethics. Any discussion of our duty to God must rest on a knowledge of our relation to Him, and much of our duty to man is undiscoverable save through knowledge of our common relation to the one God and Father of all, and one Lord, the Redeemer of all, and one Spirit, the Sanctifier of all, all of which it is the function of theology to supply. This fact is, of course, not fatal to the existence of a natural ethics— but an ethics independent of theological conceptions would be a meagre thing indeed, while the theology of the scriptural revelation for the first time affords a basis for ethical investigation at once broad enough and sure enough to raise that science to its true dignity. Accordingly, a purely natural ethics has always been an incomplete ethics, even relatively to the less developed forms of ethics resting on a revealed basis. A careful student has recently told us, for example, that Between the ethics of pagan antiquity and that of the Old Testament, there is a difference of the widest and most radical kind. There is no trace of gradual transition from the one to the other. That difference is first seen in the pagan conception of God and of man's ethical relation to him. It was essentially a morality between man and man, for where man's relation to a personal God is not apprehended, anything approaching an universal ethics is impossible, and only individual virtues can be manifested. Ethics was thus deprived of its unity. Morality became but a catalogue of separate virtues, and was deprived of that penetrating bond of union which it receives when the realm of human personalities is bound by innumerable links to the great central personality, God. We must not, however, on the ground of this intimacy of relation confound the two sciences of theology and ethics. Something like it in kind and approaching it in degree exists between theology and every other science, no one of which is so independent of it as not to touch and be touched by it. Something of theology is implicated in all metaphysics and physics alike. It alone can determine the origin of either matter or mind, or of the mystic powers that have been granted to them. It alone can explain the nature of second causes and set the boundaries to their efficiency. It alone is competent to declare the meaning of the ineradicable persuasion of the human mind that its reason is right reason, its processes trustworthy, its intuitions true. All science without God is mutilated science, and no account of a single branch of knowledge can ever be complete until it is pushed back to find its completion and ground in him. In the eloquent words of doctor Pusey, God alone is in himself, and is the cause and upholder of everything to which he has given being. Every faculty of the mind is some reflection of his, every truth has its being from him, every law of nature has the impress of his hand, everything beautiful has caught its light from his eternal beauty, every principle of goodness has its foundation in his attributes, without him in the region of thought everything is dead, as without him everything which is would at once cease to be." All things must speak of God, refer to God, or they are atheistic. History without God is a chaos without design, or end, or aim. Political economy without God would be a selfish teaching about the acquisition of wealth, making the larger portion of mankind animate machines for its production. Physics without God would be but a dull inquiry into certain meaningless phenomena. Ethics without God would be a varying rule without principle or substance or centre or regulating hand. Metaphysics without God would make man his own temporary God, to be resolved after his brief hour here into the nothingness out of which he proceeded. It is thus as true of science as it is of creatures that in him they all live and move and have their being. The science of him and his relations is the necessary ground of all science. All speculation takes us back to him, all inquiry presupposes him, and every phrase of science, consciously or unconsciously, rests at every step on the science that makes him known. Theology thus, as the science which treats of God, lies at the root of all sciences. It is true enough that each could exist without it, in a sense and in some degree, but through it alone can any one of them reach its true dignity. Herein we see not only the proof of its greatness, but also the assurance of its permanence. What so permeates all sections and subjects of human thought, has a deep root in human nature and an immense hold on it. What so possesses man's mind, that he cannot think at all without thinking of it, is so bound up with the very being of intelligence, that ere it can perish, intellect must cease to be. It is only in theology, therefore, that the other sciences find their completion. Theology, formally speaking, is accordingly the apex of the pyramid of the sciences by which the structure is perfected. Its relation to the other sciences is, thus, in this broader sphere, quite analogous to its relation to the other branches of the theological encyclopedia in that narrower sphere. All other sciences are subsidiary to it, and it builds its fabric out of material supplied by them. Theology is the science which deals with the facts concerning God and his relations with the universe. Such facts include all the facts of nature and history, and it is the very function of the several sciences to supply these facts in scientific, that is, thoroughly comprehended form. Scientific theology thus stands at the head of the sciences, as well as at the head of the theological disciplines. The several sciences deal each with its own material in an independent spirit and supply a multitude of results not immediately useful to theology. But so far as their results stand related to questions with which theology deals, they exist only to serve her. Dr. Flint well says, "...the relevant facts of natural theology are all the works of God in nature and providence, and all the phenomena and laws of matter, mind, and history and these can only be ascertained by the special sciences. The surest and most adequate knowledge of them is knowledge in the form called scientific, and therefore in this form the theologian must seek to know them. The sciences which deal with nature, mind, and history hold the same position towards natural theology which the disciplines which treat of the composition, genuineness, authenticity, text, development, etc. of the scriptures do towards biblical theology. They inform us, as it were, what is the true text and literal interpretation of the book of creation. Their conclusions are the premises, or at least the data, of the scientific natural theologian. All reasonings of his which disregard these data are ipso facto condemned. A conflict between the results of these sciences and the findings of natural theology is inconceivable. It would be a conflict between the data and conclusions of natural theology, and so equivalent for natural theology to self-contradiction. The religion of the Bible is but one of a multitude of religions which have left traces of themselves in documents, monuments, rites, creeds, customs, institutions, individual lives, social changes, etc., and there is a theological discipline, Comparative theology, which undertakes to disclose the spirit, delineate the character, trace the development, exhibit the relations of all religions with the utmost attainable exactitude. Obviously, the mass of data which the science has to collect, sift, and interpret is enormous. They can only be brought to light and set in their natural relationships by the labour of hosts of specialists of all kinds. Christian dogmatics has to make use of the results of natural theology, biblical theology and comparative theology, and to raise them to a higher stage by a comprehensive synthesis which connects them with the person and work of Christ, as of him in whom all spiritual truth is comprehended and all spiritual wants supplied. The essence of the matter is here admirably set forth, though as connected with some points of view which may require modification. It would seem to be a mistake, for example, to conceive of scientific theology as the immediate and direct synthesis of the three sources, natural theology, biblical theology, and comparative theology, so that it would be considered the product in like degree or even in similar manner of the three. All three furnish data for the completed structure, But if what has been said in an earlier connection has any validity, natural and comparative theology should stand in a somewhat different relation to scientific theology from that which biblical theology occupies, a relation not less organic indeed, but certainly less direct. The true representation seems to be that scientific theology is related to the natural and historical sciences not immediately and independently for itself, but only indirectly, that is, through the mediation of the preliminary theological discipline of apologetics. The work of apologetics, in its three branches of philosophical, psychological and historical, results not only in presenting the Bible to the theological student, but also in presenting to him God, religion, and Christianity. And in so doing, it supplies him with the total material of natural and comparative theology, as well as with the foundation on which exegesis is to raise the structure of biblical theology. The materials thus provided, scientific theology utilizes, just as it utilizes the results of exegesis through biblical theology, and the results of the age-long life of men under Christianity through historical theology. Scientific theology rests, therefore, most directly on the results of biblical exegesis as provided in biblical theology, but avails itself likewise of all the material furnished by all the preceding disciplines, and in the results of apologetics as found in natural theology and comparative theology, of all the data bearing on its problems supplied by all the sciences." but it does not make its direct appeal crudely and independently to these sciences any more than to exegesis and Christian history, but as it receives the one set of results from the hands of exegetics and historics, so it receives the others from the hand of apologetics. Systematic theology is fundamentally one of the theological disciplines, and bears immediate relation only to its sister disciplines. It is only through them that it reaches further out and sets its roots in more remote sources of information. 7. The interpretation of a written document intended to convey a plain message is infinitely easier than the interpretation of the teaching embodied in facts themselves. It is, therefore, that systematic treatises on the several sciences are written. Theology has, therefore, an immense advantage over all other sciences, inasmuch as it is more an inductive study of facts conveyed in a written revelation than an inductive study of facts as conveyed in life. It was, consequently, the firstborn of the sciences. It was the first to reach relative completeness, and it is today in a state far nearer perfection than any other science. This is not, however, to deny that it is a progressive science. In exactly the same sense in which any other science is progressive, this is progressive. It is not meant that new revelations are to be expected of truth, which has not been before within the reach of man. There is a vast difference between the progress of a science and increase in its material. All the facts of psychology, for instance, have been in existence so long as mind itself has existed, and the progress of this science has been dependent on the progressive discovery, understanding, and systematization of these facts. All the facts of theology have, in like manner, been within the reach of man for nearly two millenniums, and the progress of theology is dependent on men's progress in gathering, defining, mentally assimilating, and organizing these facts into a correlated system. So long as Revelation was not completed, the progressive character of theology was secured by the progress in Revelation itself. And since the close of the canon of Scripture, the intellectual realization and definition of the doctrines revealed in it— in relation to one another, have been, as a mere matter of fact, a slow but ever-advancing process. The affirmation that theology has been a progressive science is no more then than to assert that it is a science that has had a history, and a history which can be and should be genetically traced and presented. First, the objective side of Christian truth was developed, pressed on the one side by the crass monotheism of the Jews and on the other by the coarse polytheism of the heathen, and urged on in its own internal need of comprehending the sources of its life. Christian theology first searched the scriptures that it might understand the nature and modes of existence of its God and the person of its divine redeemer. Then, more and more conscious of itself, it more and more fully wrought out from those same scriptures a guarded expression of the subjective side of its faith, until, through throes and conflicts, it has built up the system which we all inherit. Thus the body of Christian truth has come down to us in the form of an organic growth, and we can conceive of the completed structure as the ripened fruit of the ages, as truly as we can think of it as the perfected result of the exegetical discipline." As it has come into our possession by this historic process, there is no reason that we can assign why it should not continue to make for itself a history. We do not expect the history of theology to close in our own day. However nearly completed our realization of the body of truth may seem to us to be. However certain it is that the great outlines are already securely laid and most of the details soundly discovered and arranged. No one will assert that every detail is as yet perfected and we are all living in the confidence so admirably expressed by old John Robinson that God hath more truth yet to break forth from his holy word. Just because God gives us the truth in single threads which we must weave into the reticulated texture All the threads are always within our reach, but the finished texture is ever and will ever continue to be before us until we dare affirm that there is no truth in the word which we have not perfectly apprehended, and no relation of these truths as revealed which we have not perfectly understood, and no possibility and clearness of presentation which we have not attained." The conditions of progress in theology are clearly discernible from its nature as a science. The progressive men in any science are the men who stand firmly on the basis of the already ascertained truth. The condition of progress in building the structures of those great cathedrals, whose splendid piles glorify the history of art in the Middle Ages, was that each succeeding generation should build upon the foundations laid by its predecessor. If each architect had begun by destroying what had been accomplished by his forerunners, no cathedral would ever have been raised. The railroad is pushed across the continent by the simple process of laying each rail at the end of the line already laid. The prerequisite of all progress is a clear discrimination which, as frankly, accepts the limitations set by the truth already discovered as it rejects the false and bad. Construction is not destruction. Neither is it the outcome of destruction. There are abuses, no doubt, to be reformed, errors to correct, falsehoods to cut away, but the history of progress in every science, and no less in theology, is a story of impulses given, corrected, and assimilated, and when they have been once corrected and assimilated, these truths are to remain accepted. It is then time for another impulse, and the condition of all further progress is to place ourselves in this well-marked line of growth." Astronomy, for example, has had such a history, and there are now some indisputable truths in astronomy, as, for instance, the rotundity of the earth and the central place of the sun in our system. I do not say that these truths are undisputed. Probably nothing is any more undisputed in astronomy, or any other science, than in theology. At all events, he who wishes may read the elaborate arguments of the Zetetic philosophers, as they love to call themselves, who in this year of grace are striving to prove that the earth is flat and occupies the centre of our system. Quite in the same spirit, there are Zetetic theologians who strive with similar zeal and acuteness to overturn the established basal truths of theology, which, however, can never more be shaken, and we should give about as much ear to them in the one science as in the other. It is utter folly to suppose that progress can be made otherwise than by placing ourselves in the line of progress. And if the temple of God's truth is ever to be completely built, we must not spend our efforts in digging at the foundations which have been securely laid in the distant past, but must rather give our best efforts to rounding the arches, carving the capitals, and fitting in the fretted roof. What if it is not ours to lay foundations? Let us rejoice that the work has been done. Happy are we if our God will permit us to bring a single capstone into place. This fabric is not a house of cards to be built and blown down again a hundred times a day, as the amusement of our idle hours. It is a miracle of art, to which all ages and lands bring their varied tribute. The subtle Greek laid the foundations, the law-loving Roman raised high the walls, and all the perspicuity of France and ideality of Germany and systematization of Holland and deep sobriety of Britain have been expended in perfecting the structure, and so it grows. We have heard much in these last days of the phrase progressive orthodoxy and in somewhat strange connections. Nevertheless, the phrase itself is not an inapt description of the building of this theological house. Let us assert that the history of theology has been and ever must be a progressive orthodoxy, but let us equally loudly assert that progressive orthodoxy and retrogressive heterodoxy can scarcely be convertible terms. Progressive orthodoxy implies that, first of all, we are orthodox, and secondly, that we are progressively orthodox, i.e. that we are ever growing more and more orthodox as more and more truth is being established. This has been and must be the history of the advance of every science, and not the less among them of the science of theology. Justin Martyr, champion of the orthodoxy of his day, held a theory of the inter-Trinitarian relationship, which became heterodoxy after the Council of Nicaea. The ever-struggling Christologies of the earlier ages were forever set aside by the Chalcedon Fathers, Augustine, determined for all time the doctrine of grace, Anselm, the doctrine of the atonement, Luther, the doctrine of forensic justification. In any progressive science, the amount of departure from accepted truth which is possible to the sound thinker becomes thus ever less and less in proportion as investigation and study results in the progressive establishment of an ever-increasing number of facts. The physician who would bring back today the medicine of Gallen would be no more mad than the theologian who would revive the theology of Clement of Alexandria. Both were men of light and leading in their time, but their time is past, and it is the privilege of the child of today to know a sounder physic and a sounder theology than the giants of that far past yesterday could attain. It is of the very essence of our position at the end of the ages that we are ever more and more hedged around with ascertained facts, the discovery and establishment of which constitute the very essence of progress. Progress brings increasing limitation just because it brings increasing knowledge, and as the orthodox man is he that teaches no other doctrine than that which has been established as true. The progressively orthodox man is he who is quick to perceive, admit, and condition all his reasoning by all the truth down to the latest, which has been established as true. 8. When we speak of progress, our eyes are set upon a goal, and in calling theology a progressive science, we unavoidably raise the inquiry what the end and purpose is towards an ever-increasing fitness to secure which it is continually growing. Its own completeness and perfecting as a science, as a department of knowledge, is naturally the proximate goal towards which every science tends, and when we consider the surpassing glory of the subject matter with which theology deals, it would appear that if ever science existed for its own sake, this might surely be true of this science. The truths concerning God and his relations are, above all comparison, in themselves the most worthy of all truths of study and examination. Yet we must vindicate a further goal for the advance of theology, and thus contend for it that it is an eminently practical science. The contemplation and exhibition of Christianity as truth is far from the end of the matter. This truth is specially communicated by God for a purpose for which it is admirably adapted. That purpose is to save and sanctify the soul. And the discovery, study, and systematization of the truth is in order that, firmly grasping it and thoroughly comprehending it in all its reciprocal relations, we may be able to make the most efficient use of it for its holy purpose. Well worth our most laborious study, then, as it is, for its own sake as mere truth, it becomes not only absorbingly interesting but inexpressibly precious to us When we bear in mind that the truth with which we thus deal constitutes as a whole the engrafted word that is able to save our souls, the task of thoroughly exploring the pages of Revelation, soundly gathering from them their treasures of theological teaching, and carefully fitting these into their due places in a system whereby they may be preserved from misunderstanding, perversion and misuse, and given a new power to convince the understanding, move the heart and quicken the will, becomes thus a holy duty to our own and our brother's souls, as well as our eager pleasure of our intellectual nature. That the knowledge of the truth is an essential prerequisite to the production of those graces and the building up of those elements of a sanctified character, for the production of which each truth is especially adapted, probably few will deny. But surely it is equally true that the clearer, fuller, and more discriminating this knowledge is, the more certainly and richly will it produce its appropriate effect." and in this is found a most complete vindication of the duty of systematizing the separate elements of truth into a single soundly concatenated whole, by which the essential nature of each is made as clear as it can be made to human apprehension. It is not a matter of indifference, then, how we apprehend and systematize this truth, On the contrary, if we misconceive it in its parts or in its relations, not only do our views of truth become confused and erroneous, but also our religious life becomes dwarfed or contorted. The character of our religion is, in a word, determined by the character of our theology, and thus the task of the systematic theologian is to see that the relations in which the separate truths actually stand are rightly conceived in order that they may exert their rightful influence on the development of the religious life. As no truth is so insignificant as to have no place in the development of our religious life, so no truth is so unimportant that we dare neglect it, or deal deceitfully with it, in adjusting it into our system. We are smitten with a deadly fear on the one side, lest by fitting them into a system of our own devising, we cut from them just the angles by which they were intended to lay hold of the hearts of men." But on the other side, we are filled with a holy confidence that by allowing them to frame themselves into their own system, as indicated by their own natures, as the stones in Solomon's temple were cut each for its place, we shall make each available for all men, for just the place in the saving process for which it was divinely framed and divinely given." These theoretical considerations are greatly strengthened by the historical fact that throughout all the ages every advance in the scientific statement of theological truth has been made in response to a practical demand and has been made in a distinctly practical interest. We wholly misconceive the facts if we imagine that the development of systematic theology has been the work of cold scholastic recluses intent only upon intellectual subtleties. It has been the work of the best heart of the whole church, driving on and utilising in its practical interests the best brain. The true state of the case could not be better expressed than it is by Professor Auguste Sabatier, when he tells us that, "...the promulgation of each dogma has been imposed on the church by some practical necessity." It has always been to bring to an end some theological controversy which was in danger of provoking a schism, to respond to attacks or accusations which it would have been dangerous to permit to acquire credit, that the church has moved in a dogmatic way. Nothing is more mistaken than to represent the fathers of the councils, or the members of the synods as theoreticians, or even as professional theologians brought together in conference by speculative zeal alone, in order to resolve metaphysical enigmas. They were men of action, not of speculation. Courageous priests and pastors who understood their mission, like soldiers in open battle, and whose first care was to save their church, its life, its unity, its honour ready to die for it as one dies for his country. In quite similar manner, one of the latest critics of Calvin's doctrinal work feels moved to bear his testimony to the practical purpose which ruled over the development of his system. In the midst, as at the outset of his work, says M. Pannier, it was the practical preoccupations of living faith which guided him, and never a vain desire for pure speculation. If this practical need led, in the successive editions of the Institutes, to some new theories, to many fuller expositions of principles, this was not only because he now desired his book to help students of theology to interpret scripture better. It was because, with his systematic genius, Calvin understood all that which, from the point of view of their application, ideas gained severally in force by forming a complete whole around one master thought. Wrought out thus in response to practical needs, the ever-growing body of scientific theology has worked its way among men, chiefly by virtue of its ever-increasing power of meeting their spiritual requirements. The story of the victory of Augustinianism in southern Gaul, as brought out by Professor Arnold of Breslau, is only a typical instance of what each age has experienced in its own way, and with its own theological advances. He warns us that the victory of Augustinianism is not to be accounted for by the learning or dialectic gifts of Augustine, nor by the vigorous propaganda kept up in Gaul by the African refugees, nor by the influence of Caesarus, deservedly great as that was, nor by the pressure brought to bear from Rome, but rather by the fullness of its provision for the needs of the soul. These were better met, he says, by Christianity than by heathenism, by Catholicism than by Arianism, by the enthusiasm of asceticism than by the lukewarm worldliness of the old opponents of monarchism, and they found more strength and consolation in the fundamental Augustinian conception of divine grace than in the paltry mechanisms of the synergistic moralism. Here is the philosophy, specie temporis of the advance of doctrinal development, and it all turns on the progressively growing fitness of the system of doctrine to produce its practical fruits. It may possibly be thought, however, that these lessons are ill-applied to systematic theology, properly so called, that it may be allowed indeed that the separate truths of religion make themselves felt in the life of men, but scarcely that the systematic knowledge of them is of any value for the religious life. Surely, however, we may very easily fall into error here. We do not possess the separate truths of religion in the abstract, we possess them only in their relations, and we do not properly know any one of them, nor can it have its full effect on our life, except as we know it in its relations to other truths, i.e. as systematized. What we do not know, in this sense, systematically, we rob of half its power on our conduct, unless, Indeed, we are prepared to argue that a truth has effect on us in proportion as it is unknown rather than in proportion as it is known. To which may be added that when we do not know a body of doctrine systematically, we are sure to misconceive the nature of more or fewer of its separate elements, and to fancy that that is true which a more systematic knowledge would show us to be false, so that our religious belief, and therefore our religious life, would become deformed and misshapen. Let us once more, however, strengthen our theoretical opinion by testimony. And for this, let us appeal to the witness of a recent French writer who supports his own judgment by that of several of the best-informed students of current French Protestantism. Amid much external activity of Christian work, M. Arnaud tells us, No one would dare say that the life lived with Christ in God is flourishing in equal measure, and his conclusion is that in order to be a strong and living Christian, It does not suffice to submit our heart and will to the gospel. We must submit also our mind and our reason. The doctrines of Christianity, he adds, have just as much right to be believed as its duties have to be practiced, and it is not permissible to accept these and reject those. In neglecting to inquire with care into the biblical writers and to assimilate them by reflection, the Christian loses part of his virtue, the preacher part of his force. Both build their house on the sand or begin at the top. They deprive themselves of the precious lights which can illuminate and strengthen their faith and fortify them against the frivolous or learned unbelief as well as against the aberrations of false individualism that are so diffused in our day. In support of this judgment, he quotes striking passages, among others, from Mr. F. Bonitas and Professor C. H. Boyce. The former says... What strikes me today is the incomplete and fragmentary character of our faith, the lack of precision in our Christian conceptions, a certain ignorance of the wonderful things which God has done for us and which He has revealed to us for the salvation and nourishment of our souls. I discover the traces of this ignorance in our preaching as well as in our daily life. And here is one of the causes of the feebleness of spiritual life in the bosom of our flocks and among ourselves. To these fluid Christian convictions there necessarily corresponds a lowered Christian life. Mr. Boyce similarly says, There does not at present exist among us a strongly concatenated body of doctrine, possessing the conscience and determining the will. We have convictions, no doubt, and even strong and active convictions, but they are, if I may so speak, isolated and merely juxtaposed in the mind, without any deep bond uniting them into an organism." Upon several fundamental points, even among believers, there is a vagueness and indetermination which leave access open to every fluctuation and to the most unexpected mixtures of belief. Contradictory elements often live together and struggle with one another, even in the most positively convinced, without their suspecting the enmity of the guests they have received into their thought. It is astonishing to observe the strange amalgams which spring up and acclimate themselves in the minds of the young theological generations, which have been long deprived of the strong discipline of the past. This incoherence of ideas produces weakness and danger elsewhere also, besides in the sphere of doctrine. It is impossible but that spiritual life and practical activity should sustain also serious damage from this intellectual anarchy. Cannot we see in the state of French Protestantism, as depicted in these extracts, a warning to ourselves, among whom we may observe the beginnings of the same doctrinal anarchy? And shall we not at least learn this much, that doctrine is in order to life, and that the study of doctrine must be prosecuted in a spirit which would see its end in the correction and edification of life? Shall we not, as students of doctrine, listen devoutly to the words of one of the richest writers on experimental religion of our generation when he tells us that "...living knowledge of our loving Lord, and of our need of Him, and of our relations to Him for peace, life, testimony, service, consistency, is given by the Holy Comforter alone, but it is given by Him in the great rule of His dealings with men?" only through the channels of doctrine, of revealed, recorded, and authenticated truth concerning the Lord of life. And shall we not catch the meaning of the illustrations which he adds? Does the happy soul, happy because brought to the confidence of self-despair, and to a sight of the foundation of all peace, find itself saying, O Lamb of God, I come, and know that it falls never to be cast out into the embraces of ever-living love, Every element in that profound experience of restful joy has to do with doctrine applied by the Spirit. O Lamb of God, would be a meaningless incantation were it not for the precious and most definite doctrine of the sacrifice of propitiation and peace. That I may come just as I am is a matter of pure divine information. My emotions, my deepest and most awful convictions, without such information, say the opposite. My instinct is to cry, depart, for I am a sinful man. The blessed doctrine, not my reveries, says, nay, he was wounded for thy transgressions, come unto him. And when one draws towards the journey's end, and exchanges the trials of the pilgrimage for the last trial, the river that hath no bridge? Why does he address himself in peace to die, this man who has been taught the evil of his own heart, and the holiness of the judge of all? It is because of doctrine. He knows the covenant of peace and the mediator of it. He knows, and he knows it through revealed doctrine only, that to depart is to be with Christ and is far better. He knows that the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But he knows with the same certainty that God giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, and that his sheep shall never perish, and that he will raise up again at the last day him that has come to God through him. All this is doctrine. It is made to live in the man by the Holy Ghost given to him. But it is in itself creed, not life. It is revealed information. If such be the value and use of doctrine, the systematic theologian is preeminently a preacher of the gospel, and the end of his work is obviously not merely the logical arrangement of truths which come under his hand, but the moving of men through their power to love God with all their hearts and their neighbors as themselves, to choose their portion with the Saviour of their souls, to find and hold Him precious, and to recognize and yield to the sweet influences of the Holy Spirit whom He has sent with such truth as this he will not dare to deal in a cold and merely scientific spirit but will justly and necessarily permit its preciousness and its practical destination to determine the spirit in which he handles it and to awaken the reverential love with which alone he should investigate its reciprocal relations For this, he needs to be suffused at all times with a sense of the unspeakable worth of the revelation which lies before him as the source of his material, and with the personal bearings of its separate truths on his own heart and life. He needs to have had and to be having a full, rich and deep religious experience of the great doctrines with which he deals. He needs to be living close to his God, to be resting always on the bosom of his Redeemer." to be filled at all times with the manifest influences of the Holy Spirit. The student of systematic theology needs a very sensitive religious nature, a most thoroughly consecrated heart, and an outpouring of the Holy Ghost upon him, such as will fill him with that spiritual discernment without which all native intellect is in vain. He needs to be not merely a student, not merely a thinker, not merely a systematizer, not merely a teacher. He needs to be like the beloved disciple himself in the highest truest, and holiest sense, a divine. End of The Idea of Systematic Theology, Part 2, by B.B. Warfield.